0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. As always, I'm your host, David Frizzell, and it's wonderful to have your company. If you've listened to the podcast before, you may have picked up that, as well as the whole personal growth leadership stuff, I'm a bit of a sports fan. And this episode, because of my amazing guest, Kai Bretz combines those two things brilliantly. Kai is an amazing guy. He's a superhuman runner. I won't spoil the details of that here. And he's an incredibly successful professional. He's a writer. And as you're about to hear, he's super articulate, kind, and thoughtful. This episode, folks, is the complete package. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kai Bretts. Kai Bretts, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Real pleasure to have you, Kai. Look, we've got so much great stuff to talk about. You and I were just chewing the fat a bit before we hit record. I'm super pumped about this because it crosses two passions of mine, and I just want to get orientated about where we sit before we get started. I'll start with this question. Are you an, an elite ultra-distance runner who's worked out how to apply those lessons in the rest of your life, or are you someone who's tapped into some really powerful forces of life, and ultra-distance running is simply one of the avenues in which you express that?
1: It's definitely the latter. So I'm not a talented runner at all. So um, my first marathon was a four-hour, 15 marathon, so decent, but nothing world-class I mean, we're talking about two hours is world class. And similarly, I just found a way of yeah, lifting myself. And running is just one of the ways where, where that manifests. And it's very exciting.
0: It is exciting, mate. It's exciting for me to read it. I'm not a runner. In fact, I tried to run a little bit during COVID because all the pools were closed. And that was a, that was a, 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 a humiliating experience for me. But, but even though I'm not a runner, your story just jumped off the pages to me as I read it. When you talk to people about the book or about the work you do or about the fabulous history that you have, do you have trouble orientating people away from the running and towards the bigger picture lessons? Do people see you as a, as a runner telling their story or is it people pick up pretty quickly that running is just one of the stories that you have to tell amongst this great big narrative about life?
1: So, interestingly, my first readers were not runners and they directly noticed that it's not a running book. Mm. It's when you pick it up, you might say, Oh, this is a running book, it's for runners. And as soon as you read, probably you don't have to read many pages to notice it's not about running, it's about life, it's about finding your path, it's about somehow thriving. And yes, running can be one way. So, it's, it has resonated surprisingly with young families yeah, of saying, really. oh, I wish my young children uh, were reading this book because um, resilience is a topic for them. That's, that has surprised me most.
0: Hey, as much as it's not the core component, it's just a, a nice flavorsome story around the lessons. Let's talk about your running just for a minute because it is so intriguing. So your running career went from being a top, what I would call a, a top level weekend warrior I mean, one of, the, one of the marathons you talk about in your book is the Berlin Marathon, which was nice for you. It was kind of a going home. You beat your previous best time by two minutes or so, two minutes and 44 seconds, if my memory serves me correctly. And that was a two-hour, 44-minute marathon. And anyone who's listening who knows about running knows that that is a super handy time. And, and that's why it put you in that top-end weekend warrior category. I mean, you were holding down a really serious full-time professional job with one of the big consulting firms at the same time. So you were certainly no pro, but you were you were a really decent weekend warrior. You took your running from that, having done a whole bunch of marathons and you ran for fun. I mean, you, you go for 25K chat runs with your mate, which is amazing. And then you turned yourself into one of the premier ultra distance runners around the world. You beat The race record at Australia's big red run by more than five hours. Mm. In that same year, you were named Australian Ultra Performance Athlete of the Year at the 24 hour World Championships in France. I mean, this is amazing stuff. When you think about all the things that you've achieved in running, just from a pure running perspective, as a hobbyist, as someone who clearly gets a lot out of it, what are some of the highlights for you? What do you look at right now? And you're clearly far from done. But, what do you look at so far with the greatest pride?
1: The greatest pride was the shift from marathon running into ultra running into those types of races which sound absolutely crazy, so like two hundred fifty kilometers through the Simpson desert that was unachievable for me, and it probably it sounds unachievable, but but we are all capable of so much more, and that's what I'm somehow what my running is all about it's It's just trying to find completely new yeah new ways of rocking up to overcome challenges which feel superior to us and each one of us is capable of doing that that's really the message i would have uh, same at the world championships i mean i would never have considered myself as a national representative like uh, running in running for australia who has a huge I mean, the running pedigree in 24-hour running, the, you, you need an A qualifier, which is 240 kilometers in, in 24 hours. So you have to run six-minute kilometers for 24 hours straight it's to qualify. And just getting there, it blew my mind. And if we get our head around stuff, we're all capable of doing that because it is no longer a challenge which you run with your legs and you say, I have to run fast, I have to turn them over faster. You really have to run it with fully with your mind and with your heart. That's a different way of, of just rocking up and, it, and a way which anybody can somehow learn. Sounds airy-fairy, but it is, it's very tangible, as you see from the results.
0: And we'll talk all about that in a minute. We, we're going to go through, and I'm going to try and find a structure. You'll, you'll probably have to help me, Kai, when we talk through the principles that you operate by and the lessons that you've learned. But indulge me for a little bit longer about the running. When you're talking about these kind of runs, the 250 kilometers through the desert in Australia, quite hot, I imagine. Haven't spent much time out there myself. And by the way, if you're listening and wondering why Kai, with his beautiful accent, is representing Australia, he's a, he's a man of many lands. And I, I told him that we, when we jumped online tonight, I was intrigued to hear what he sounded like because his background is so diverse but you certainly lived a fair bit of your life in Australia. You've never set foot in South Africa, despite the fact that I've just told you you sound South African, you're from a German background. Now, tell us about running 250 kilometers through the desert. Two questions. That guy that I read about who broke his personal best time in in Berlin in a marathon, two hours 44, what would he have thought about running for 250 kilometers through a desert? And my second question is, What do most people, even if they've got an athletic understanding, what do most people not understand about running that kind of distance in those kind of conditions? Mm.
1: So the first one, very, very simple. It's not achievable. I cannot run 250 kilometers. I I can run a marathon, potentially two marathons, but there is a limit and not, not possible. Very simple. And that's what I said earlier, that kind of taking a jump, just purely out of faith and saying, I will get there. Mm. So that's what it took. And that, that is what it takes. It takes courage, which is not grounded in any logic, in any kind of security. It's just a, let's go for it. So that's what it took. And to your second question of running 250 kilometers in the desert, it's not, forget about the physical training to get there. It needs to be done. Obviously. I mean, that is, there is you can't rock up without physical training, yes. But the physical training is actually not where I spent the bulk of my time beforehand.
0: You I remember the- your mentor said, Gavin Freeman, said the physical training is just the, the entry ticket. That's just what <laughs> you do to get through the door. And ev- everything else is everything else.
1: So the physical training gets you to the start line. That's, that's it. And you, and it's important somehow to have some kind of confidence that the leaks are turning over. But then it is everything else which matters. It's the kind of, the, the biggest challenge for me was dealing with the unexpected. And speaking to lots of people since, that is a very common theme that we just can't deal with the unexpected. I mean, take uh, this pandemic of how much unexpected is thrown at us and how difficult it is, how tiring it is and i had to learn that of just how do i deal with the unexpected because i'm going into an environment the desert which i don't know a lot about i'm a road runner i don't know how to run on sand i don't know how to run in the heat of queensland uh, while in melbourne it's actually winter and it's cold so there is there's so much around around that challenge which i didn't know what would expect me and i rocked up and i dealt with any curveball which which happened and i really and made it work in the moment. And that's not what some, uh, a structured German brain is good at.
0: There's very cliche of you to say, but I actually thought about that while I was reading your book. And, you know, Germans are, are known, the stereotype is for precision and wonderful engineering and everything that goes with that. And the, the trains running on time and, and logistics. And part, a big part of what you had to do was accept that that was a strength that got you to a certain level in life. And it wasn't just about running. It was the fabulous, the career, it was the top tier weekend warrior marathon times you were pumping out. But you almost had to unlearn that and, and realize that it got you to a certain level, but you weren't going to go past that. You had plateaued unless you unlearned that. So let, let's get into it now. I, I could talk to you exclusively about your running. But I'm, I'm sure that that's not why everyone has tuned into the podcast. In fact, one of the things I should tell you is I've, you're the second. I just need to have a, a top-level cyclist on my podcast because I had a guy called Trent Grimsey on years ago who is the record holder across the English Channel. and His was a fabulous story. At that period, he was the undisputed champion of the ocean, you know, winning lots of races internationally. He just went and had a crack at the English Channel. His great rival held that record. He went and had a crack at it at the exact right time in his career, and and he told that story beautifully. So I've had him, I've had you as the runner. I just need to get a cyclist, and I've had this kind of virtual top-level triathlon on my podcast. Now, Kai, your book, as you well know, is called Turning Right, and the subtitle is uh, a compelling account of marathon runner Kai Bretz's transformation into one of the best ultra runners in the world but it's those first two words turning right that have terrific meaning in your story can you tell us where you got those words from what was the what was the event in your life where those words came from
1: so it was shortly before the Berlin marathon where i wanted to b- become a better marathon runner and i was plateauing in running and probably in ju- life in general so that was just the context and my mentor gavin who you had mentioned before and already he somehow noticed what my problem was, but as a good mentor, he could never point it out. I had to experience it myself.
0: Brilliant.
1: And he said, well, he just said, Kai, you're too planned. You're too, you're too structured. You're too disciplined, which didn't resonate with me at all because that's what got me there. And he took away all the kind of uh, structure by saying, Kai, the, the one run you have to do per week is a mystery run. And he invented that concept and said, well, you have to just run with a friend. Your friend basically runs the session for me, for you. You don't know what it is all about. All you have to do is to follow this friend and do whatever he does for however long he does it, however fast he runs. If he runs too fast for your liking, well, tough luck, just keep up. So big alarm bells went off because obviously I I was terrified. It's, It's like this guy would... My best friend then, in running, he would he would break me. He's, he's obviously ca- more capable than I am on shorter distances. And the question I had before that first run was, when is it fair to give up? I just pause here for a second because that's some of the internal dialogue which probably heaps of us have. Is like, when is it fair to give up? Just as a reminder, my my intention was to become a better runner, and I was thinking of giving up. So, long story short, first day of a mystery run, uh, this friend picks me up from home. I knew I had to do just the same as, as he was doing. So he picks me up, we we'll go through the, through the front door, through the garden gate, he turns right, I have to turn right and we get moving. But before we got moving, there was this big aha moment because turning right at my garden gate, I had never done. Never ever had I turned right at my own garden gate. Is I was going for a run every single day of the week, I got out of the house, turned left, turned left again to get to the beach and and ran there. What we did that day was turn right, turn right again, got to the same point at the beach in a way, but it was just a completely different world was opening up to me because it was that that experiencing myself that I was too measured in my approach. And there was a world right at the front of my doorstep, which I was not prepared to enter because I was clinging to control and just had to do the same thing every single day of the week. So turning right became the metaphor for me of just finding a new approach, testing new, well, exploring new territory, see where it would take me and really immersing myself in discomfort. That's what it is all about.
0: And as you said, your your mentor... Gavin Freeman, who's who's got his own fabulous history of of training elite athletes at the Olympics, Paralympics, Winter Olympics. He's written his own fantastic book, which is very famous. Your your book wasn't the first time I've heard of his. It was a, a, a business Olympian, I think, is the book he wrote. But you know what? He got lucky, though. To be honest, Kai, didn't he? You were fertile ground. He was pointing you in a direction and hoping you would work out things about yourself in a more powerful way than he could ever explain them to you. And the thing is that you did. You got that lesson. You you went on that run with your friend and you picked a friend who you knew could hurt you over shorter distances. You made the point in your book that you could beat him over a marathon, but he was a middle distance runner. He could hurt you over shorter distances. and He might have taken the opportunity to enjoy that pleasure of hurting you And you going out for a run, you didn't know if it was going to be a 20-minute run or a two-hour run. You didn't know when he put on a burst of speed whether that was going to be for 100 meters or for three kilometers. You just had to go with that uncertainty, yet you learned the lesson straight away. The lesson of turning right outside of your gate as opposed to left, which you'd so habitually done, it wasn't lost on you. You were fertile ground. And it just made me think a little bit when I was reading your book, what if you didn't get that? What if you didn't get that lesson and it slipped you by? And I I wonder how many people that you talk to and and think about and work with aren't as absorbing of the lessons that life could be teaching them as they they go through those challenges.
1: It's a really nice contemplation in a way, because I would like to respond that I was in my mid-30s and probably that lesson was in front of me for 30 odd years and I never got that lesson. And on that day, I was just ripe to get it because I was clinging to control all my life. And I'm sure there were plenty of opportunities to learn what I had to learn. But sometimes we just have to be ripe for it. And yes, there is some luck, but there's also we can you just have the seeds there. And then sometimes they are on fertile ground and and then then things move. So don't get disheartened if, uh, if you're on your own journey and it feels like Nothing is happening. it's that being on the plateau and nothing is happening is actually never right it's something is happening, and then it's just the next s curve launches one day, and we have no control over that when that day comes. Just stay working on whatever you're working, and then the, the s curve will take off one day.
0: Hey Kai, you learned that lesson about turning right, and it it, it was more than just going for that run with your friend as you say it became the metaphor of all the lessons that you were learning that very important lesson about those really fantastic qualities you had about discipline and what got you there what got you to the point of you know being a, a fantastically successful professional someone who was a very accomplished marathon runner and you know there's a lot of people in life who have a goal of running one marathon and you just knock them off on the weekends and it wasn't about running a marathon it was about doing your best time so all of these great things got you there, and the turning right was a metaphor for a, a new phase of your life, a, a new paradigm, you described it. From your experiencing working with other people, what are common versions of turning right in people's lives? What are those things that they've locked into their life unthinkingly, that they don't challenge, they do them regularly? And in the long run, they they are either hurting them actively or at the very least holding them back. What are some of those common things you see in people?
1: Yeah, it's probably there are three buckets of things. So one is the controlling aspect, which is very, I mean, I know that very well. And that could be being a perfectionist. Like everything has to be perfect and that could hurt you because you don't give things a chance until you feel you're ready and you're wasting time in a way. That's very common for, to perfectionists. Then the controlling element of being a bit more autocratic could be a, a case of just having to be the person who bangs on the table and who has to push through whatever is on their mind, where you see the seed in being autocratic is actually positive. It's you're decisive. So keep the decisiveness and, and drop some of the negative sides. So that's probably the element of turning right of whatever got us here has something positive in it. But then we are overdoing it. So that's the controlling side. The second big bucket is more the self-protection side, which also comes pretty strong across in the, bo- in the book. That's me as well. It's, it's that withdrawing element of if I notice that you start hurting me, I'll just withdraw and I'll, I'll go back into my cave, uh, which is really what would hurt me then eventually is I'm not authentic. Because somehow, while well, I can avoid pain, but I'm not really authentic. And running is a perfect one where I was avoiding pain in marathons, obviously. I mean, it, it does get painful. Kilometer 30, 35, even kilometer 40, like just this kind of voice of saying, ah, oh, just slow down now. Just don't go that hard. Just withdraw in a way. Just mm. pull out because something is twitching. So that kind of protecting side. Mm. And the third Big bucket, I think, is the complying bucket, which is less familiar to me, but I see that as well with lots of people. And you would notice that that would be you if you wanted to please people. And then in order to please people, which is there's nothing bad in pleasing people, but in order to do that, you let go of the outcome. And in a way, you sacrifice your own voice and you sacrifice really saying what needs to be said to get a better outcome just in order to please somebody. So that's probably a few areas where turning right would be doing the opposite.
0: Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation. So Kai, I've mentioned a number of times Gavin Freeman, I didn't realise I'd be banging on about him so much, but a couple of his words that you relayed in the book, just you know, they stopped me in my tracks. I turned off my iPad. I was reading your book on an iPad and just kind of stared out the window for a while, thinking, well, "Wow, they are powerful." And you can probably guess what it is. You were talking to him. You asked him about Olympians that that succeed or don't. They go as as favourites and don't win the gold, or they go as nobody and do win the gold. You know, there are and there are stories in between those two extremes and he said on the one hand we could strive to overcome challenges focus on the process and give it our best and in with that mindset anything is possible he called it motivation to succeed and on the other hand we could spend our energy avoiding a negative outcome and this is motivation to avoid failure that is some amazing wisdom and i know it's it's probably the blindingly obvious to some people who are listening but for me it must have been the right time that I read that. It hit fertile ground, and it just got me to start cataloging the things in my life where I'm striving to succeed, and you know I'm taking a risk, and I'm, I'm having a go, and I'm outside my comfort zone, and, and they, they're the things, when I thought about them, that sit in that category. They're the things I'm really proud of, but there are a lot of things, if I'm honest, in my life that I'm not trying to win. I'm just trying to avoid failure, and I wonder- If just that lesson alone, what kind of impact that could have on people if they were really to think through their life and their actions and their choices and say, well, am I trying to win here? Am I trying to succeed? Or am I just trying to avoid failure? Because I reckon there's a huge difference at the end of it all.
1: It absolutely is. And that was the big difference of where my running took off. So in the end, doing the 244 hour marathon, which was great. But it was there was that element of I want to avoid failure, and failure would be not running a personal best. Mm. Some of that was just my world of okay, get a nine second PB. That's good enough in a way. And then I went into ultra distance running where I had no expectations, and I noticed the sky's the limit. I just go and see what is possible, and with what is possible, I ran the fastest twenty four hour race at the World Championships as an Australian ever, where you say. That's quite a benchmark of no Australian has ever run a faster world championship race in 24 hours. And it was not because I was chasing a target. It was because I was fully present and I was just there to give my best, having fun with the rest of the team, encouraging them them when uh, I was passing them, when I came across them on, on the track. It was just an amazing experience. And we all know those experiences when we are at our best is think of those peak experiences in your life. And the mission I somehow had uh, over the last years was trying to understand how can I get more of them? So who do I need to be to somehow just have more of those peak experiences?
0: And I bet that first time that you ran a 24-hour race in in France, the World Championships, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't go in there thinking, geez, I hope I... I make it. I hope I get to the 24 hours. You went in there thinking assuming you would and were able to on some level attack it and give it a, a a really good performance. Is is that fair to say there was you were driving to succeed rather than just trying to stop yourself from failing and failing would have been not finishing?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I went in with just the intention to to really be present and to give my best. Mm. And I was confident that I could run a really great, great run, but I didn't know what that meant. So a, a really good run could have been 220 kilometers, or it could have been 240 kilometers, and I surprised myself and ran 259 kilometers, which is, is basically six back-to-back marathons in under four hours. That's what I did.
0: It's just amazing. All right, let's let's talk about the way that you've chunked your book into three categories. The first is the focus on the possibilities when you take your fate into your own hands? The second is, what does it take to unleash the magic within you and reach new heights? And thirdly, how do we make that magic accessible across our whole life? That's a, a thing that I'm really interested in hearing you talk about because it's the antidote to that lopsided life, isn't it? The the mm-hmm. kind of life where someone is super, super successful, say, cliche, in their career, great career, earn lots of money, but, you know, morbidly obese, terribly unhealthy, terrible relationships with their family and their kids and all of that other stuff, that really lopsided life. So we'll get to that in a second, but tell us about how do you see your life differently? What steps can people take in this focusing on the possibilities that that open up when when you take fate into your own hands? That turning right moment, that cataloging your life and seeing, are you striving to succeed or are you striving to not fail? What are the possibilities and, and how do people open their eyes to what exists in their own life?
1: So the very first one is to stop letting our heads rule our lives. I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm very experienced in that and saying, oh, I'm a smart person. I know what things will turn out, so how they will turn out. And in a way, just drop all that judgment. Drop the judgment and experience for yourself what will happen. So go back to my garden gate and say, if I turn right versus if I turn left, the logical reasoning says it doesn't matter. That's my hit saying, who cares whether you run left or right? You will not be a better runner. That's the logic. Now drop it. And I can tell you from my own experience, it made all the difference. It made all the difference because it allowed me to tap into just. In exploring mode, which is much more motivation to succeed than a, a failure mode or trying to avoid failure and saying, well, I need discipline because otherwise I'm stuffed. That's one thing. And I, I also just tap into my intuition. When we let go of judgment, we can see where does our intuition get us to? Because subconsciously, we're way smarter than our conscious minds. We don't acknowledge that, but we have a lot of answers within us, and again, Encourage to read the book and read about the world championships. I had some major challenges during the, that race and the huge pressure of uh, wearing the the Australian outfit where you say, well, you don't want to stuff up when you're wearing national colors. And I just tapped into my intuition and the answers just presented themselves. There was no thinking involved. It just, the answer was just there and I knew what I had to do. So to answer your question is the first thing is drop the rational thinking, just don't let it run out of li- your life and allow some kind of intuition to come through, and you will enter some interesting territory.
0: Let's put that in the context of, of something that people listening might recognize. Say, you know, that we've all got this work thing in common. Say you're working in an organization, be it medium or large or super large, and you know that you know, the, you you are not reaching your potential in the organization. And because everyone in an organization, you know, most of the time is really just thinking about themselves and their own performance and and their own path forward and their own potential. So, you know, we're sitting here, we're thinking, God, I exist in this organization. I'm probably limited as to how far I can go. I will never reach that level. I will never be in that office. I will never be in this team or whatever it might be. What are the sort of things... You know, they, they, they've they placed a ceiling of themselves, and there could be a range of reasons mm-hmm. for that. You know, what they witnessed their parents doing as they grew up, a lack of or, or uh, you know, a, a number of role models in a certain way in their life, the path that they've worked so far, the the path they've enjoyed so far, and that might place limits on themselves of expectation. How can someone look at the realities of work? about not getting noticed, about having bosses who you don't always feel are smarter than you or more capable than you or have better ethics or, or values than you that you're held in this place with maybe in five years' time, you'll move up that one little rung, which is a couple of extra bucks a year and a whole bunch of extra work. And then maybe in 10 or 15 years' times, if you really play your cards right, you might move up two rungs, and then you might get a little bit more money a year, but you've got a lot of work to do before then, and you're going to be saying a lot of yes, sir, and no, sir, at the right time in between now and then. But that's the realities of people who have got a mortgage to pay and they have responsibilities outside of that. How can they break that mould that is has been cast around them by so many other people?
1: It starts with exactly that framing, as you put it. I mean, you've framed it as there is a mould around me and there are rules around me and I have to play by those rules. And if you do that, you are a pawn in the game. Absolutely right. And it will play out the way you've described. Give it a different framing and say, okay, this is my life. What do I want to achieve in this life? What is my purpose in this life? What drives me in this life? And then you ask, well, and therefore, who do I want to be? And what do I need to do? You give it a, you take ownership. You're not the pawn in somebody else's game anymore. You're actually saying, well, this is my game. And then therefore, how do I want to play this? And take that office. I mean, I'm not saying everybody will eventually become a CEO. That's not what I'm saying. But let's assume that you really want to become a CEO. It will need to start in your head. It will need to start there. I mean, if you can't imagine yourself ever being a CEO, you will never be a CEO. Because how would you want to convince others that you will be? And then the question is, what type of work is required? What kind of... And we come back to take the analogy to running. It's not only training the legs in order to run faster. So, there is some technical stuff you will have to learn. Yes, that's fine. But what else is it? What kind of networking do you have to do? What kind of, what does it take? And it might not be in this office. It might be in somebody else's office. But take the game into your own hands. And then things will unfold very differently. So I'm very big on ownership there.
0: You've described that very nicely. And and then it moves me to the next part of your book, which is ask, answering the question, what does it take to unleash the magic within you and, and reach new heights. So let's say we've bought into this idea and we say, all right, Kai's right. If I do just plow on and play the game, I, I become a pawn and I'll just move through this system in the way that I'm supposed to and the way that the mold has told me to. But I see things differently. I, I see a brighter future for myself and it might not be a CEO. It's what makes you fulfilling and fulfilled and you're, you're very clear on that. So I've worked out what that is and I've imagined it. And that's the, you know, you reminded me then of that that old saying, dress for the job you want. And there's some wisdom to that because it actually changes your mindset. It's a bit like the metaphor for you turning right. It changes your thinking and it reminds you every day of, I'm dressed like this because I want that next thing or that promotion or that opportunity, et cetera. Ooh. I'm not telling you to dress for, to change your your dress tomorrow. We're talking about what it means as a a metaphor in your life. So then what do we actually do about that? I get all that clear in my head. What does it look like if I'm trying to unleash that magic and reach that new potential? We can stick with the CEO metaphor, but that might become a bit dry. You know, think about it in any part of our life, Kai, what does it take to you know, we've seen this brand new potential that's that's not predetermined, created from the mold that's put around us, but is truly what we want to do, and we're determined to make it happen. What does it take?
1: So it really takes. We have to bridge that gap between what we are capable of right now and what some of those demands are. I mean, that that's the theoretical answer to it, but how do we do that? Relatively simple. It's we will need feedback and some kind of awareness of what are the strengths which are now holding us back. So in my case, it was control. It's w- what are we overdoing? What is, where's our reactivity? Because that's really holding us back. How are we reacting to things rather than proactively choosing a new path? And then we can turn right. So for me, it was control. And and therefore, my right turns were more like, Trusting people, cooperating with people, going a bit with the flow without somehow planning—those were all very uncomfortable moves. So I was aware what my problem was, and every single right turn which I did then, metaphorically speaking, was a very uncomfortable move. So they were uncomfortable. So for the desert, in to prepare for uh, the desert in Queensland to run the two hundred fifty kilometers, I had training sessions. So Running in the evening, sleeping in a tent in a friend's garden to get used to sleeping in a tent, discomfort, <laughs> yeah. and get up next morning and run another thirty, forty kilometer run. Like going straight from sleeping on the ground, doing that, which that was, it was weird. It was some, it was something I wouldn't have done. It was something which you can say, well, it sounds silly. It's not what a kai would do, but that's what it takes. It's what is it other people would do to get there, and you are not doing? What is it you could do? And what is it what really makes you uncomfortable? It's that's the sweet spot. Whatever makes you
0: uncomfortable,
1: there is some growth in there.
0: And that is the sweet spot. You know the, what you've just talked about there reminds me of what you were saying earlier about you know your, your success in marathon running and and always pursuing the PB. And you know, you're know you running these distances, the same distance, and you've got this PB in your mind. And if you train really well, super well, you eat the right stuff, you train hard, you have a great preparation, everything goes right, you've got maybe a 10-second PB in you if everything goes right. And it's a bit of a brain drain, applying yourself that hard to run the same distance and keep pounding away at that really sort of small, tiny, incremental changes to your PB. And I guess that's a bit like if you were just to keep plugging away at work in the same way, trying to do the same thing that you do, just that tiny little bit better. The enormous energy and that incremental gain that you get. But the step change for you came when you moved away from marathons and you went to ultra marathons. Because that was where it was this whole new world the the old quality marathon runner thought that was crazy and yeah, and but, and but you fix- were stuck with that incremental paradigm that's it
1: and that's to give you an example from work one of my first right turns at work was I was extremely planned and prepared for every single meeting at work which is a great quality to have hmm. now guess what the right turn was is I was going into one-on-ones with boss and with uh, my team members who i was responsible for and just didn't have an agenda now where you say oh yeah but how will that work out it's isn't that a waste of time well it's not if you suddenly go in and just listen and see what can emerge obviously the the long-term answer is somewhere in between Mm. but there was a side of me which which wasn't developed and that was the listening side so because everything was planned and everything was in my head and everything had to be a good concept rather than just see what emerges emerges when you listen to somebody that's probably a good example and that's where the sweet spot is because it is uncomfortable it's I don't know how it will play out
0: that's a great example it's actually very applicable to me you know you hear a lot about it you know I listen to a lot of different podcasts and you can hear in some podcasts at the interview will just ask the next question no matter what the guest has just said and that's a great way to feel planned and to feel very safe and if you stick with that you might get incrementally better at being able to articulate yourself and drafting the right kind of podcast notes but you know what a leap of faith is is when you come into an interview with no questions planned And the sweet spot though is somewhere in between. It's having a few questions. It's having the story in the background clear in your head. You know, the direction you want to take it to. So I I think that's a great example. And I, I think you could easily stick at being a podcaster forever and ever and just always ask your list of questions and miss some fantastic opportunities like you just described in life and work. All right. So let's get to act three of your book. So. You thought about this in running, and this is where it really came to roost for you. And We've encouraged people to think about it in life, in their work, in whatever it is where they want to play a bigger game. How do we then take those kind of concepts and apply them to the rest of our life so we don't have, as I described before, that really lopsided life where you've got this one fantastic thing going on and everything else is burning around you?
1: Well. I noticed that it was all about balance Um, and your metaphor of that lopsided way, it shows to not be lopsided, we need balance. And that is hard because, I mean, we typically have somewhere focused. So getting balanced, it's actually the entire journey was all about balance. It was balancing out somehow control versus some kind of flexibility. It's balancing out running versus work. It's balancing out really being stuck in my head versus some intuition. And probably the common theme across everything is being more present. And if we manage to get more present, then things fall into into shape. So that's how I've noticed that eventually these kind of findings come into the rest of my life. One thing I can highly recommend is, is meditation. I didn't do that early on, so my marathon times, they weren't. I didn't do any meditation, and I started very easily with five, ten minutes a day, and I ramped it up, and I really noticed huge benefits. It's just becoming more present and not needing the answer for everything, because right here in the present moment, if you think about any topic, you will come up with it, but not if you're stuck in your head. Then you have to search for folders in the head, which might be lost right now.
0: There's a lot of people who are going to be listening who have really loved your story, they love hearing about the success that you've had with marathon running and the way you've been able to apply it across your life. And, and like me, they, they might really enjoy that really powerful concept of either you're motivated to succeed or you've motivated to avoid failure. If you could leave them with three or five key takeaways that they can remember over the next few days and few weeks so that they can recall the depth of what you've had to say, what would those few things be? How many have you got?
1: Let's see how many I've got three in top of my mind, but I might, there might be a few more. So I recall the meditation bit. It's, that's what I would do very first. It's if you run, just you can do meditation while you're doing anything else. Listen to birds, listen to your own breath, listen to whatever it is. It's become more present is the first thing. Second thing is notice when you are judgmental. With yourself or with others it's that kind of in my case it's self-righteousness is really listen to that voice because that's something you can let go of and that's only you can't turn right if you think in a way if you think you know it all so that kind of judgment doesn't help third thing is if it scares you it's the, you're on the right path it really 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 is simple it's if it's scary then do it, do it and see where it it leads you to. That's probably number four is just do it, just do it. And number five is not an action, but overall is don't settle for who you think you are. That's probably the main message here. It's if it is at work and you want to, to go further at work or if it's in your hobby or if it's in your private life and you somehow try to assess, oh, how far can I go? Whatever you come up with, you're already limiting yourself. Don't settle for anything logical. It's you can go way, way further. There's way more magic in you. Just go for it and let it happen. That's a mindset shift.
0: Kai Bretz, I could talk to you all night about life and running. It's a fabulous topic. You, you talk about it incredibly well. You write about it incredibly well. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Team Guru podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And that was Kai Brett's I love his story, and I really enjoyed our chat. The concept he explored in his book, either being motivated to succeed or motivated to avoid failure, was a real light bulb moment for me, as was the whole concept of finding the opportunity to turn right in our own lives. And his top five tips again. Number one, become more present. Meditation can really help with that. Number two, notice when you're being judgmental and eliminate it from your life. You can't turn right when you think you know it all. Number three, if it's scary, you're probably on the right path. Number four, just do it. Take the first step, get started. And number five, don't settle for who you think you are. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Kai on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.